If you want to have the, the passage that we read in front of you, just to uh, follow where we're going, that would be helpful. I read a novel when I was at university. I, I studied English literature and I read a novel called White Noise. And uh, it centers around uh, a family called the Gladneys. And they're a successful uh, middle-class couple in, in America. And uh, the plot unravels when uh, the wife, Babette, sees an advert in a newspaper that says, Are you afraid of death? Volunteers wanted for secret research. She's invited to be a human subject for a wonder drug called Dilar, which has been created in order to take away the fear of death. I wonder how quickly such a drug would fly off pharmacy shelves if it was available today. We're surrounded by death. It's something that happens to us all. And yet we're more scared than ever. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called On Death. Uh, a few years before he died. Um, he argues that our generation today is the least prepared for death that has ever lived. He argues that because of modern medicine, because of our high quality of life in the West, because we have institutionalized death so that it happens far away from home, death is foreign, death is completely unknown, death is frightening. It's to be avoided, even in conversation. You think money and politics are taboo? Well, try bringing up death. Um, Tim Keller, in his book, mentions the example of uh, the 17th century theologian, John Owen, who outlived 11 of his children and outlived his wife too. And since people died at home in those days, he literally saw every person that he loved die before his very own eyes and it meant that everyone grew up seeing the bodies of those who died and they watched relatives die and that was hard it wasn't this uh, abstract distant concept it was real now in this book uh, it's not nostalgically pining for a return of that way of living but it's it's a very helpful observation that tim keller made are we more scared of death in our society than previous generations? And if so, what is the cure? Well, this morning, by looking at Philippians 1, we will see that the Christian life ought to create a sort of conflict in you. And it's a unique conflict because both outcomes are great. And it's found there in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. It's the ultimate win-win. The reason why death is so frightening is because of our lack of belief. That what is to come is better than what we have here. How can being with Jesus be better than all that I have here? So it's unsurprising that people uh, like Paul who is in chains while he was writing this letter... Those who are struggling with, with suffering and hardship, they've got a very different outlook to us. And what we'll see this morning is that there are two ways that our life can go as a Christian. There is a, a great outcome and an even greater one. 
So, two headings for us this morning. The first of these is progress. Progress. To live is Christ. Progress is something that we all want in life, isn't it? For the thing that we do next to be better than the thing we did before. No one longs for their life to get worse and worse. We want it to get better and better, don't we? And as Christians, we will progress. But it may not look the way we expect it to. You see, for us to grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus and for the gospel to go out, it often comes at a cost. It's not plain sailing. The Christian life is is good, but it's not always easy. And one of the consequences of authentic Christian living is opposition. Now here in the UK, we generally live in great freedom, don't we? We meet with no fear at all. Uh, We've met this morning with the windows wide open. Now there are many countries uh, where you just wouldn't do that. And when you go to school or go to work tomorrow, you can tell someone where you were today without any fear of repercussions. Uh, But most of us have have probably faced some sort of opposition in our lives before, whether that's being uh, the butt of someone's joke or um, maybe it's more serious than that and you've maybe lost friends or family members have phased you out of their lives uh, or maybe uh, you have um, lost work or um, there are a number of things that can happen to us because we are believers today. But for Paul and for many of the believers in the first century, the opposition was fierce. It was what we call persecution, hostility and violence and ill treatment as a result of their faith. Did this come as a surprise to Paul, do you think? Should it surprise believers today? Well, Jesus warned his disciples. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Another time he warned his disciples, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. It wasn't hidden away somewhere in the small print when a disciple decided to, to follow Jesus. Jesus made it very plain and clear for all to see. The Christian life is good, but it's not always easy. But notice that when Paul was persecuted and opposed, rather than hindering the cause of the gospel, the very opposite happened. Much like the cross of Christ bringing uh, life and bringing salvation to many, the hostility of persecution only went to spread the gospel further. I want you to imagine uh, you've got Paul and you've got Timothy and you've got Silas and Barnabas. They're sitting in a first century coffee shop. Uh, It's a strategy meeting. They're trying to brainstorm ideas of how they can get the good news about Jesus to as many people as they possibly can. And Timothy, uh, he's sipping away at his Americano and he 
he pipes up saying, uh, oh, what if we uh, manage to get a meeting with Caesar? We could share the news with him. Uh, imagine the influence that would have on the whole Roman Empire. And Silas just laughs to himself. <laughs> oh, I love your optimism, Timothy, but you're being a bit naive. And then Barnabas, who's the great encourager, uh, he tries to encourage young Timothy. He says, it's, it's a great idea, Tim. I think you're doing a really good job here. But remember, Caesar is not only the busiest person in the world, but he's also the most heavily protected. He's got these Praetorian guards, the best of the best soldiers, making sure that even members of his family don't get too close to him. So he wouldn't let preachers like us go anywhere near him. And Paul was there. He remained silent. He knew that if they kept living faithfully and preaching faithfully, that God would open doors. Now, I don't know if that's what happened. There probably wasn't a coffee shop back in those days. But uh, fast forward to, to the subsequent arrest of Paul, and it may have seemed bleak to most But for Paul, and eventually his supporters, they slowly but surely realised that the gospel was being spread in ways that they just couldn't anticipate. Uh, look at verses 12 to 14 with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So uh, Paul is, is chained to these soldiers 24-7. But that is probably not how Paul saw it. They were the ones being chained to him. He had a captive audience. And every 10 or 12 hours, I'm not sure what Roman shift patterns were, but he had a new person to speak to. And they must have been struck by what they heard. Because if you look ahead with me, look at chapter 4 and verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The church is growing. The church is being strengthened, not in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but because of it. The most influential people in the world were getting to the gospel um, shared with them. People were being emboldened, it says, because of Paul's example. Soldiers are putting their trust in Jesus. What are we to make of this? What is uh, the application for us today? Where uh, Maybe we'll get to a day where we are sent to prison for our faith, but how can we live these things out for ourselves? Well, uh, the preacher Stephen Lawson challenges us. Um, not only to see this as an isolated incident for Paul, but uh, to apply it to our own lives too. This is what he says. I think it's really helpful. No matter what our place in which we may find ourselves, God can use us to advance his word in that very situation. Where is it that you feel restricted in life? Could it be a difficult job? Maybe you feel confined to your house with little children. Maybe you're a salesman and you're confined to your car. Maybe you're a teacher and feel trapped in your classroom. Maybe you're a high school student and you're tied to your class schedule. Wherever you find yourself, you can see your situation 
as an opportunity to give testimony for Christ where one would not otherwise exist. You are not where you are by accident, he says. You are where you are by divine appointment for the purposes of sharing the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? What will cause the gospel to thrive? It's not celebrity endorsements. It's not lights and smoke machines. It's not events and and busy church programs. No, it is showing Christ to others through faithful Christian living. And that will sometimes bring about suffering. But Paul reminds us his... He reminds us that suffering is something that is granted to us. Look at verse 29 with me. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I think our lives ought to bring about opposition, if not persecution. If you consider history and you consider the state of the world, we are in a tiny, tiny percentage of Christians who enjoy this sort of freedom. And I think that's for, for two reasons. Uh, we're, we've been blessed to live in a, in a Christianized country where we've been either ruled over by Christians or at least by people who are sympathetic towards the Bible. But sadly, I think the main reason why we don't face opposition is that we don't look all that different to unbelievers. There's no real clear distinction between how we live and how others are living. We prioritize and we chase after the same things as the world does. We speak and we act in the same way. We try and do the bare minimum. We try not to cause offense. We try to duck out of difficult conversations. Uh, The American preacher, Vody Baucom, put it really well when he said, suffering is common for all. However, persecution can be avoided, he says. All you have to do is compromise. Right, it's a, a, a challenging quote, isn't it? It may be that in our lifetimes that we may have to make a clearer stand for our faith. We may have to draw lines. And there may be consequences for following Jesus. Where going to church will result in serious ramifications. Will you hold fast in those times? We see that Paul is confident that he will be released from prison. His main ambition, though, is not being released so that he can be comfortable. It's not so that he can leave his cramped cell, as nice as that would have been. His goal is to serve, to serve Christ and work for the cause of him. You see that in verse 22, uh, when he says, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Although he was going to face possible execution for preaching the gospel, he seems to to think that God has a plan for him, for him to continue in his ministry when he was released. And look at verse uh, 25 to 28. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not, in fri- not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. Paul knows that the Philippians will be so encouraged if he is able to see them again. That they would be especially encouraged if Paul uh, was there in person after his imprisonment. And he calls on them and he calls on us as Christians today to live in such a way that is worthy of the calling that we've received as believers. And so we see that even through persecution that God can work. And the same is true today. The church is growing in places like North Korea and in China and Honduras and and Haiti and these places where it's difficult to be a Christian. Uh, I heard uh, in a book that in China um, some uh, of the pastors refer to prison as seminary because uh, they know that they'll go there if they are faithful pastors and they know that in prison they'll meet older wiser Christians who they will learn lots from isn't that amazing and there's an old quote that you may have heard Um, it's from the the early church fathers and they said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and often we do find that the places with the fiercest opposition is where the church is thriving we read of, of many uh, missionary accounts. Um, we read these accounts and their, their biographies where uh, we hear amazing stories of God's saving work and churches growing in hard places. But there are also many places where persecution is resulting in Christians dying and churches closing. And God is still at work, of course, but sadly we think of many, many places in the world where churches used to be, where Christians uh, used to meet together in freedom and in peace. And those are the biographies that we don't read and the stories that we don't hear. Those who are silenced, those churches which have been shut down. In many towns and cities and lands where vibrant Christian communities used to meet in in North Africa and the Middle East and in Asia, uh, there is... Only rubble where church buildings uh, and churches used to meet. There are only a handful of Christians. Uh, The last hundred years in particular have been uh, really difficult and there's been immense persecution for Christians in the Middle East, uh, claiming many lives, causing millions to to leave the region. Uh, Japan was home to hundreds of thousands of Christians in the 1800s until most were killed or forced uh, to hide their faith or reconvert when the emperor banned the Christian faith. It was only after World War II that Christians emerged again and small numbers of churches began to open. And today, uh, there's only a small uh, number of believers in Japan compared to what it was 200 years ago. You see, millions of people have died for their faith. You see, uh, it's not quite as simple as that quote about the the seed of the martyrs. Um, Not all persecution ends in visible earthly progress. Not all faithful preaching brings fruits of righteousness. But do not be discouraged. If persecution doesn't bring progress, it ends in promotion, which leads to our second heading. Promotion. To die is gain. Uh, promotion to die is gain. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, 
the pioneering American missionary George Verwer uh, passed away after a battle with cancer. And I was struck by something that he said in one of the final prayer letters that he wrote. He said, uh, please do not pray for total healing as I'm really looking forward to heaven. And he wasn't facing death because of his faith. Um, He wasn't being persecuted, but he was someone who had a really healthy view of life and death. His hope was in spending eternity with Jesus rather than any life that he had built here. And that sort of thinking is really rare. The world is doing all that it can to put off death. Uh, Every once in a while you hear a news story about some sort of breakthrough that's been made by scientists in a lab somewhere Uh, which will finally allow us to live that bit longer. Another step closer to conquering death. Uh, Earlier this year, a group of scientists at the University of California uh, managed to expand uh, and extend the lifespan of a a cell of yeast by 82% and said, there's no reason why we can't do this to human cells. Uh, The article that was writing about this said, we are born, we age, we die. So goes the story of humanity. However, this familiar progression could be shaken up by enormous advances in genetics that have opened up new windows into the underlying biological mechanisms that cause us to age, raising the possibility that they could be rewired to extend our lifespans. They've extended bread's lifespan, but yeah, whether it can work in humans, we will remain to see. My point is that people are so frightened by the prospect of death that the most exciting and the biggest scientific uh, breakthroughs are the ones who promise to extend our lives, to stave off this, this stench of death. Now, we absolutely should be saddened by death. Uh, Jesus' reaction to Lazarus, his good friend's death, uh, shows us that it's proper and right. It's right for us to grieve the death of those that we love, for us to be angered by the way in which sin has cut life short, how it interrupts and how it separates. But our call this morning is not to be filled with dread. Our deaths, if we are believers, bring about the greatest promotion there is. The struggling sports team longs to be promoted to the top league. It's fantastic that uh, Notts County uh, were promoted, wasn't it? And, uh, and other teams as well. Um, but every sports team doesn't long to stay in that league. They long to be promoted to higher things. Uh, if you're in the, in the working world, uh, the employee at the bottom of the ladder longs to be promoted. It would mean a better life. And a Christian ought to long to be promoted to a higher glory. As much as Paul knew how much progress could be made in life, the help he could be to the Philippians and and other Christians, uh, what he longed for most was to be with Jesus. And the only way he was going to be with Jesus was to die. And so we see this conflict within Paul. Look at verse 20. Um, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. There is so much uh, conflict here. If I live, great. More people get to hear about Jesus. If I die, even better. I get to be with the one who I'm so excited to tell others about. And for many of us here this morning, I'm sure uh, the fear of death is all-consuming. And of course, there are others we must think about, the effect that our deaths would have on on others. Uh, But the good news that the Bible so clearly teaches is that, yes, death comes to all of us, but it's not the full stop. It is a comma that leads to the next part of our story. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. This is a wonderful quote. A Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all his sins, his sorrows, his afflictions, his frustrations, his oppressions, his persecutions. He knows that death shall be the resurrection of all his hopes, his joys, his delights, his comforts, his contentments. We can surely learn from Paul. For Paul, death was the most wonderful outcome of all. The glorious outcome of death was not about the place that he would go to, but the person that he would be with. Paul was, of course, looking forward to heaven, but only because Jesus was there. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, there is something to fear about death. There is something to fear about death, because it's not this gentle turning off of the light. It's not ceasing to exist. Dying without knowing Jesus as our saviour is something awful to happen. Jesus said this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying this, The only thing that is worthy of our worry and our fear is judgment day. To stand before God with the the long list of all the things that we have done wrong, that is a terrifying thought. But if you've put your trust in Jesus... If he has died for your sins, if your record is his record, if you have put your life in his, then you know true life. He was condemned so that we may be considered righteous. He has risen again so that we may one day do the same. He has prepared a place for us to go and be with him. And he cares for us, not a single hair can fall from our heads uh, without his knowledge. And that's why we can be bold in the face of death. Uh, Back in the 1700s, there was a group of Christians called uh, the Methodists. And uh, after treating uh, several gravely ill Methodists, a doctor uh, was talking to the leader of the Methodists, Charles Wesley. And he said, uh, most people die for fear of dying. But I never met with such people such as yours. None are afraid of death. They're calm and patient and resigned to the last. You see, they were living out what the psalmist said when he cried out to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The fear of death is not going to be conquered by a miracle pill. It's not going to be conquered by trying to extend our lives by 40, 50 years. 
It's not going to be defeated by distractions, uh, by uh, finding so many fun activities to do that you will be distracted enough to forget about your problems, or by living a life so pleasurable and so enjoyable that we will never stop to think about death. No, the answer to overcoming your fear of death is found in a person who has conquered death already, and his name is Jesus. So whatever we face as believers, we can have peace. We can know Jesus' presence in all of these situations. Uh, To live is Christ, to live faithfully for him, and to enjoy him and to tell others about him. And if worse comes to worst, we die. And that's actually even better. And we'll be with the one who we love forever and ever. What an amazing confidence that we can have.